People didn't have this concept of time as a resource that they had to make the most of, or if they weren't doing that, then they were wasting it. Anthropologists refer to as um, task orientation instead of time orientation, which just means like, you know, you just respond to the rhythms of life. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I uh, have a confession in that I had a morning where I went to Starbucks, got my Starbucks eventually, mm-hmm. and uh, had a bit of like a existential crisis because I forgot my wallet and my credit cards, <laughs> and I had to go all the way back. This is literally an hour ago, yeah. and I'm like, oh, I'm talking to a time management expert, and here wow. I am wasting an hour of my time, literally doing nothing. And fumble the bag here, basically. So that's uh, a huge mistake that I had. And uh, yeah, what, what do you think about that? <laughs> um, I, I, I'm not sure that I'm a time management expert in the sense of, you know, in the sense of trying to make you more and more efficient and optimized. The kind of time management expert who would be shocked by such a thing. It's just like you know, it's like life happens, and I certainly find myself in similar situations i think the the real thing is that we're not um you know creating these systems and approaches to productivity for ourselves that make that into like something bigger than it needs to be right it's like it's Mm. a bit annoying to do that but if it makes you fall off your incredibly rigid plan for the day well maybe the problem was with the plan rather than with you you know right well your book is called four thousand weeks yeah, it's time management for mortals, right? That's the name of your book. Right. So right. when I re when I reread that, I was like, all right, I'm a pretty mortal. In most <laughs> half of the week, yeah, I, I tend to do stuff like this where I waste tons of time. So yeah. I felt a little better about myself. Good. But <laughs> <laughs> what are your thoughts on like the traditional productivity gurus or experts that want to schedule minute by minute that you know, will track what their time is worth by the millisecond, have all of these hacks that they can, you know, try to do and everything is about efficiency. You know, when, when you wrote the book, I, I, I understand that it is certainly about time management, but you're trying, it seems like you were trying to have a more holistic view, the overall view of what time itself is uh, representing for us as people that are living on this earth. When you think about like time management traditionally in, in, in that sense, you know, how would your approach to how you want other, see, other people to see time uh, be different? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, I am not sort of incredibly hostile to conventional time management gurus necessarily. I think there's lots of interesting tips and techniques there. I tend to want to focus on like what the motivation is that brings us to them and what people are usually 
trying to do on a psychological level when they embrace those kinds of systems, which is, I say, um, you know, trying to get to a place where they feel sort of infinitely capable, where there's nothing that they would have to say no to. There's no tough choices they have to make about how they use their time. Um, they, um, you know, we, we embrace these strategies because like, oh, finally, it's this that's going to mean that like we can do all the things that we feel we want to do or that we need to do. So in a mm. way, the worst you can say about, you know, the worst kind of conventional time management person, I would say, is that they are sort of an enabler of this psychological mm issue that we all have as humans and that i you know have certainly had in an extreme form i think for a long time this fixation with trying to master time get in charge of time and what i wanted to do in my most recent book four thousand weeks is just to say like well okay the question of time management is a really more serious one than we give it credit for because it's actually the whole of life right i mean what what isn't time management when you when you when you think about it in those terms but if all we do as finite beings is try to get more and more and more efficient, we're just going to get busier, actually. We're not going to get um, more relaxed at all. We're going to get busier because we're going to just increase our capacity to do stuff. And we can talk about this in more detail, but like that basically just means that you get more stuff to do. Um, right. And so you never get to this, um, this thing you're chasing of uh, finally everything going smoothly. And, and so what I'm arguing in the book is that if you want to get to that sort of peace of mind, it has to be about having the courage to neglect things, about saying, look, I really, really care about this goal and this relationship and this activity. So some of the other ones are not going to get my my time. And actually learning to be OK with that is really hard. I mean, I'm still I'm a work in progress, but it's um, yeah. but I'm pretty sure it's the only way. Well, for context, so for people that see 4000 Weeks, they may not understand exactly what that represents. Can you give a quick explainer of like why it's called 4,000 weeks? Sure. This is very, very roughly the average lifespan of a person in the West in the 21st century. If you're lucky and stay healthy, you know, you may get a few more than 4,000 weeks, but it's the main point is it's like, it's not very many. And even if you break records for longevity, it's only going to be like 6,000 or something. If you're, you know, it's, it's still a very, 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 um, constrained amount and i was hoping with that number to um you know shock people uh enough to be interested but hopefully not terrify them into not wanting to uh open the covers of the book and you know i actually think that although that idea of four thousand weeks is scary on some yeah. level what i'm trying to say about that as you get into it is actually a very i hope anyway liberating and relaxing message it's um it, it it's about not having to beat ourselves up for being incapable of being god basically when it comes to time and that that's actually the way to be more wholeheartedly human yeah yeah i mean we we i think people on the back of their head they realize that we have a finite time on earth but it's such a difficult thing to think about because it is negatively perceived obviously right when you think about death we think about all right. the negative things like come with that, whether it's our family members dying or people that we love that are dying. And some people do like have really embraced this approach. One of the guys that I follow, Jesse Itzler, he's the husband of Sarah Blakely, mm. who founded Spanx. It's like the, the billion dollar right. um, apparel company. And 
yep. he has a countdown that he's built to the number of seconds and <laughs> minutes that he has left based on his current health biological markers. And he's right. like all about that. He's all about like embracing the 4,000 weeks mentality and principle. Apparently it freaked out his wife and he stopped doing that, but <laughs> as I would too, I mean, that's, uh, that's like an extreme level. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it reminds me of the, the blog post, um, by Tim Urban, Wait But Why is one of my favorite blogs to read. Yeah. And he has a blog post called The Tail End, which I highly recommend everybody to check out. Yeah, yeah, and it's, yeah. it was really one of the most profound things that I read. And some of the takeaways that I had, it obviously it, in a visual way, it really illustrates the shortness of life. And one of the things that he, he mentions that, and I might butcher the exact numbers, but he said that by 18, when we usually go away from university in the Western world, that we've spent somewhere between like 85 to 90% of the time that we'll ever spend with our parents. And it's mind blowing, right? Cause if you think 18, you have 70 years more to live, but the chances of most people right. after college visiting them, maybe once a year, if you live abroad, I maybe visit my parents yeah. once every year as well. And you spend two weeks with them. Yeah. So even when I think about the number of times that I'm going to see my parents, I'm like, oh, I'm 30 right now. And if my parents live for another yep. 40 years, hopefully I might see them 40 yep. times total in my entire life moving yep. forward. And it's like, whoa, it's really mind blowing when you think about it that way. And the number of, you know, all of these things that he mentions, um, how would you say, cause I know you talk about like philosophers and, you know, the Roman empires and all these philosophers that think about death and time, how, how do they perceive time? And was it any different than the way we look at time today? Yeah, I, I will. Um, I'll definitely answer that. I think the just to pick up on something you said, um, I love that uh, tail end yeah. thing. And um, I'm not sure I love the sort of count counting. Down <laughs> yeah, yeah. One's, uh, extreme uh, sort of actuarially predicted life. I do think it's important to say that, you know, what I'm trying to say, and it, I'm not speaking for Tim Urban, who's brilliant, but like, you know, this is something to be aware of, this kind of finitude, the fact that we're running out of opportunities to do things every day. I think it isn't helpful if you get yourself into a huge kind of flustered panic about mm. that, right? I mean, if what you do with that information, say with the thing about seeing your parents, is like feel terrible every time you're doing one of the many things that adult life involves apart from seeing your parents, right? Um, and many good things that adult life involves apart from seeing your parents, um, then you sort of maybe not understood it in the way that, I'm not accusing you, I mean, sure. the person has maybe not understood it in the way that they, that they could have done, which is more like, okay, this is going to sound really depressing, but it's the opposite of depressing. It's more to see that like, this kind of loss and sadness and sacrifice and not being able to do all the things that we'd like to do and and running out of opportunities to do things, it's sort of built in to being a human, right? So definitely, you know, spend a few more days visiting your parents in your 30s than you otherwise might. Definitely don't like fritter days and days away doing activities that you don't really think are interesting or important. Absolutely. 
but at the same time like ultimately there is it's sort of like the tragedy of human life right i i promise you this isn't just going to be a total downer but like like it it it's built in this kind of poignancy this sadness that no like i just can't do I, it's not in my gift to spend all the time i'd like to spend writing all the time i'd like to spend with my family all the time i'd like to you know you just have to make these trade-offs find a compromise but the really uplifting thing about this is that like that's when you get once you can sort of accept that that's the superpower right accepting the fact that this is just how it is for humans instead of constantly sort of fighting and struggling to get to some place where you don't have to experience this sort of double-edged thing right so definitely make wise decisions about how you spend your time instead of dumb ones but also sort of let it seep into you that like you're just going to have to make some tough choices because that's what we have to do and the only way to fail at that is kind of to refuse to make them and end up just sort of you know not giving anything uh your 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 sort of fullest um energy you asked before about um how people understood time differently through history and there's lots of different ways into this i mean we could talk about this for hours and hours and hours and to some extent the ancient greeks and romans as with so many things had an extremely modern uh understanding of history you know in the stoic writings there's just some extraordinarily kind of feels like it could have been written yesterday kind of uh kind of stuff there's another whole attitude to time that i sort of explore in the book which is somewhat speculative but it's my it's my sort of speculation with some evidence about what uh a medieval peasant uh would have for example would have experienced in terms of time and it's this notion that lots and lots of sort of pre-industrial societies and perhaps even some non-industrial societies today um that people didn't have this concept of time as a resource that they had to make the most of or if they weren't doing that then they were wasting it or like they had to fight against time to make certain deadlines or that they were they lived in this state that anthropologists refer to as um task orientation instead of time orientation which just means like you know if you have a small farm with a few cows uh, or a few sheep right you just you just respond to the rhythms of of life in that way right you don't think you haven't got a schedule in your head and you're trying to batch your tasks and figure out how to sort of get through the stuff most efficiently divided up into pomodoros right you're just doing the things as they present themselves and uh a few years ago i when i became a parent i discovered that actually you know having a newborn baby is in many ways exactly it pushes you back into this way of relating to time because it's like for the first couple of years at least like good luck trying to schedule this human right they do what they do they sleep when they're going to sleep they need their diapers changing when they need their diapers changing and there's all sorts of ways in which that's actually a very fulfilling way to engage with with time right to not be constantly trying to think like uh you know am i am i making the most of this hour or not but just like okay what needs doing right now um it's a very powerful uh way of being in the world because it it really sort of returns you to the to the present to the moment now i'm not really suggesting well firstly medieval peasants had terrible lives i'm not suggesting we go back to their lifestyles but but 
and secondly, we need all this coordination and these schedules and this sense of, you know, how much can we get done in the next hour? This is how businesses, organizations, governments, they all need that. But I think it's really important to maintain an awareness that that's not the only way of thinking about mm. time. And that sometimes actually it's both more fulfilling and more productive, I think, to learn how to let go of being governed by the clock in that way. And just to say like, okay, what's the next thing that I, that needs to happen through me now? Don't worry about the goal systems and the vision, five-year visions and the, and the sort of task and project lists just for now. Like just what's the thing that is asking to be done yeah. right now? I think it would be a very, very refreshing and restorative thing for, you know, the, the productivity minded or as I certainly have been in my life obsessed productivity. Yeah, no doubt. When I observe the differences of how people in different centuries and different generations have lived, it's not necessarily that you want to take everything with, with, you know, with praise. I think you take specific things that have worked for them that maybe we went the other way. And even when I look back at Tim Urban's um, post, Wait by Why, on the long tail, he has three yep. main takeaways that he suggests based on the long tail of life. Number one yep. is quality time matters. And I think when we're being so efficient, we're always thinking about what's coming ahead and how we can maximize time. You're never really present in yep. that moment. Um, so, I, so just to like finish that off, the second one was that priorities matter. And mm-hmm. it's really about you know prioritizing because you don't have a lot of time. And yeah. the third one is living in the same place as the people that you love really matters as well. So it's meant to be this yeah. like kick in the butt, positive reaffirmation that yeah. time can be used in the most product, in the most effective way or in the most um, useful or valuable way for you to get the things that you want in life. Not necessarily that there's a countdown timer and you're going to be right. you know, running out of time. So yeah, yeah that's a useful framework, yeah, I believe. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when we're talking about like the busyness of life and you talk about like people that lived in the pre-industrial generations, do you think we're actually busier today than before? I'll kick it off with like a statistics because uh, there's an economist, John Keynes, who predicted that in the, 19, in the 1930s, he predicted this, that his grand, great-grandchildren, which is basically like 100 years from now, yeah. would be working only 15 hours per week based mm-hmm. on the fact that our living standards would be five times higher. Yeah. And when I looked, I actually like had to pull this up as I was doing the research for this. And I saw that in the 19, in 1931, the hours per year work was yep. 2,500. And right. the, in 2011, it was 1,840. So it went down, but it went down by what, like 20% or so? Right. The GDP per person in that 1930 was 100. And in 2011, it was 515. So the one thing that he got right was that the living standards per person has increased by five times. But our working hours have not decrease by that time at all. Um, So just to kind of set you up there, like how, what do you think happened there? What what do you think is the discrepancy 
of living standards are higher, but we are still working just as much. And there are all sorts of sort of economic arguments that I, not necessarily my expertise, sort of macroeconomic arguments, but I think the really basic way of understanding what happened is that like our capacities to do more and to grow wealth and the technology required to sort of extend our reach and get more done in a short amount of time all expanded massively over that period. But, and I think it's a little bit unfair to Keynes for me to say this, but like, because he was very, very smart, but like the basic mistake that other people certainly make is, is in the assumption that our needs and our wants and our desires are somehow fixed, right? So we're going to massively expand our capacity to meet our desires, but our desires are going to stay the same. Well, then we're going to meet them and then we're just going to be happy and have no need to do any work. Of course, what really happens is that our desires increase as well. The things we feel that we need uh, keep increasing. And th this thing that happens sort of longitudinally through the decades, anyone can see in their own lives if they've had the experience of going from having a bit less money to a bit more money, right? You, you absolutely experience this thing. It's almost like an iron law, no matter how much you want to resist it, which is like when you have no money at all, you are totally happy drinking like soluble coffee or the cheapest coffee beans you can get. And then if you get enough money to actually buy the coffee beans that you that you like to have in your life, they cost more money, you get them. Within a year of that sort of lifestyle or maybe even weeks, um, that just feels like a basic requirement of your lifestyle. Mm. It's no longer like something that you could very easily do that. So with this ratcheting effect, the hedonic treadmill and all the other ways it's been talked about um, is obvious just in an individual life. If you then add like the growth of consumer capitalism to that and the sort of endless um, uh, finessing of ways to stimulate our appetites and to make us uh, want more things, then obviously it's just like, why on earth, when are we ever going to be satisfied? Plus it's all based on social comparison. So, you know, it takes a lot of strength of personality to say, everyone around me in my neighborhood has something, but I don't care about it. Like that, that takes real active, active will. Um, so, right, we just get busier and busier. And, and you even get to this situation that we have now, which I think would have really astonished people in the pre-industrial era. Well, so much would have done, but which is that you actually get, it, it's pretty normal that you get busier the more successful that you are. Right. So mm. certainly people at the very bottom of the economic ladder can can be extremely busy, like working several jobs just to keep a roof over their heads. But the sort of people rising up through the ranks at the fancy companies to the top and making huge amounts of money, they are incredibly stressed and overwhelmed with stuff. They have not, you know, this is not at all the idea of sort of aristocracy of days gone by when the whole point of being born wealthy or whatever it was would, would be to sort of just like be a layabout and banquet and hunt stag or whatever. Yeah. So, so you know, it, it's really, we've sort of done a number on ourselves because of the nature of how like desire works and this feeling that we have that we're just almost going to get almost at the point where, where we're finally, you know, have what, have what we need. Why is that? Why can't we just stand still and be satisfied with that? I mean, I think, um, I hope these very loud birds outside my window aren't being picked up too much on this. No, I can't hear anything. Maybe it's a lovely, relaxing sound. I don't know. Anyway, um, 
I mean, uh, you could come at this in so many different ways. And I'm not a huge fan of every sort of evolutionary explanation, but there is clearly a fairly solid evolutionary explanation here, which is that these appetites are appetites that evolved in a radically different uh, setting than the one that we live in now, right? This is, I'm not saying anything many other people haven't said, but like the reason we want, the reason we have a sort of, um, an appetite for sugar and fat is because we evolved in times when it was important to like to to get a little bit of that and it was scarce and now it's you know uh, abundant and that's a problem because we really really want things that that um that we have plenty of um and the same goes for sort of physical possessions and and sort of the security of shelter and clothing and all these things right like there was a there was a time when like these things really really mattered you had to be incredibly aware of them and think about them and spend a lot of your resources fighting to get them and now that's kind of not the case but we're still the same but we're still the same uh animals you know who've who've evolved into this situation i mean that's one that's one way of understanding it i think hmm. yeah no i think i think that's a fair point for sure um I was thinking about it as well. And like, this is a recent hot topic now with AI yeah. where you can do tasks that would have taken you a week and you can do it in an hour, maybe less yeah. for some people. And it's frightening for some people. Some, for some people, it's incredibly exciting. But when I strictly look at my work hours and I think about how people in the pre-industrial revolution or people that were farming and the tools they had versus the tools that we would have today where you're talking yeah. about people that use shovels and now you have automated robots that can just do the entire thing for you. Yeah. And the fact that people just didn't work, people still work just as much. Uh, and uh, it almost seems like you're familiar with like Parkinson's law. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And for people that don't know, it's basically in, in a summary, which, which you can fill in if I butcher this is that time fills based on the allotted time that you give it. So if you have uh, a three hour task, and you, you sorry, you have a 30 minute task and you give yourself three hours, you tend to give yourself all three hours to complete that 30 minute task. Yeah. And Work I, I wonder sometimes fill the time available. Yeah. Yeah. Fill the time available. Yeah. That's a, that's a better way to explain it. Yeah. And I wonder if because of this conceived notion that we have in our system from work society, uh, our schools, that it's set to be this 40 hour work week, that no matter how much tasks that we complete that we just find new things to do and sometimes that means like we progress a little bit faster but it never kind of runs out it just seems to be that the, it's rooted not necessarily in how much we get done but it's rooted in the core psychology of how people have perceived what a normal work week should be and i don't know if that will ever change unless there's like a um, a shift in the way we see a work week versus tools because AI is only going to get better and it's only going to automate and have less stuff for people to do. But I don't know if people will still work less. <laughs> right. It's a really interesting thought experiment, isn't it? Because like if we put aside the really create like most extreme doom scenarios for what AI could do to us, and then you get a lot of people saying it's going to sort of make people jobless. And um, it might and certainly some jobs are going to get certain kinds of jobs are going to be sort of done by by ai but it's an interesting question because actually like the, the as you say the general history of technologies 
that enable us to do certain things faster than before is not that, I mean, it is that people get moved out of jobs. Certainly automation has had that effect on employment in a huge way in manufacturing and elsewhere. But it isn't generally that we sort of then find a way to just sort of, um, uh, you know, enjoy all this new found time. What happens is that new tasks fill up and everyone's as busy as ever, but they may be busier with with less fulfilling things. So obviously that's where some of the pressure for things like universal basic income come from in this context. It's like we don't need to just give in to that. But yes, in the context of an ordinary sort of a person doing a sort of knowledge work job where they're not immediately in the danger of the job going away and now they have chat gpt to do the sort of first drafts of all sorts of um writing that they do i'm not at all convinced that that person is going to end up being less busy as a result right because everything mm. else i know about uh technological aids to productivity just leads to the tempo being upped right so just to sort of pick an um, sort of a sort of broad brush example um if it's true that a bunch of people providing creating content in a certain context let's say you know writing for websites it's a bit of an old-fashioned example already but like you know if if that is something that speeds up uh because of chat gpt then the demand on those people to provide articles is just going to rise to offset the balance and the the amount they're being paid is going to diminish so they need to do they need to get um they need to do more of them and 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 even in a good way right even if you're someone who is celebrated for your work and you're using chat gpt well if you're celebrated for your work you're going to get asked to do much more of that work and you're going to be able to now because chat gpt is freeing up the time and so this this ratchet mm. just keeps on going and i think that you know the, the the reason is just that there isn't a at the end of the day technology won't rescue our relationship with time technology has all sorts of plus points quite a few negative points but it's not the way that we're going to find peace of mind with respect to time to find peace of mind with respect to time you just sort of have to decide to operate from peace of mind and yeah. to uh, be okay with some level of enough and to sort of, um, you know, uh, be 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 willing to make tough choices about what you're doing with your time. Uh, That's pretty think... profound with what you're saying. Is like technology won't resolve your relationship with time. That's right. that's like such a true statement. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead yeah. and cut you off. No, no, no. Yeah, I'm I'm happy for you to cut me off to tell me I'm being profound. That's great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> always, always, always welcome. No, I think it's I. You know, I think that that that's that's just the fundamental point, right? And the reason is that we're finite, and pending the invention of literal eternal life, you know, putting that aside, um, we're always going to be finite, and therefore, technology can only help us pack more things into our finite time rather than solve the problem of our finite time. And at the same time, what it tends to do, information technology, of course, is expose us to more and more things we want to do with that time or information we feel we should consume. And so so it, every gain is offset by a, by a loss with technology. It doesn't mean that there isn't a role for technology. It means, yeah, it's not, it's not the source of salvation. Yeah, it's, it's so true because it's only gotten better. Technology has only gotten better. And it just seems like it doesn't matter. <laughs> like right. people are still going to be working. And, and I wonder if, if, and I love your thought on this. Like, it seems like in Western society, I, I don't know what it's like so much in, in England. 
obviously I have friends in London and that's, it's, it is very much that your identity, your purpose in life is defined by your job, your career, yeah. your title, how much money you make, who, you know, yeah. your status. Yeah. And I wonder if, if some of that is just so rooted in the way we, we live in, in a lot of Western society and no matter how much automation there is, no matter how much time we have, because that's the core root of how we define our identity, our purpose, that it's always going to revolve around having a 40, 60, 80 hour work week because people haven't really learned to find different purposes in life. You know, when you think about people that lived in the Renaissance days where they were painters, they were inventors, they were poets, they were, uh, you know, they were doing all of these, they had all of these passions in life. And it seems like today we're just really rooted in gaining as much success as possible, making as money as much money as possible. That even if we have all this time and automation, that we just don't really know what else to do because we haven't really taught ourselves to do that. Yeah, I think that's true. I think a sort of failure of imagination is is a part of of what's going on here. I I also think that you know there's just an inevitable pressure as well. It's like. Um, uh, you know, I'm I'm always a bit wary of suggesting that. It's just a sort of failing of your character if you feel that you need the fancier apartment, feel that you need to keep working to keep up your status among your friends. Because, like, that's the culture we're in. So definitely, you know, resist it. But um, at the same time, uh, we shouldn't, you know, it's it's clear that it's... Um, uh, it's a powerful force. And I think, you know, we should be, we should give ourselves credit if we can resist it even a little bit. You know, if you can make an hour in your week for something that isn't part of the whole, uh, you know, mad productive uh, race, then uh, that is, that's a good start. How do you define what is the most important for you in your day, your week, your month? Are there frameworks you use, questions you ask yourself that allows you to really prioritize what that is? I mean, there are a couple which I'll share, but I mean, I have to say that the direction I'm sort of going as I get a little bit older is ever more towards trusting my intuition, right? It's ever less a case of here's this system, here's this approach, here's this rule, and ever more kind of like actually ha having the courage, it is a kind of courage to just be like, okay, what does the whole of me know needs to happen now instead of just my sort of narrow conscious, conscious brain? But you can certainly create tools in your life that aid that intuition, you know, um, and so it's not just a question of like having no, no system, no plan. Um, one of the one of the things I've written about, one that I sort of invented, I suppose, or developed from other people, and there's nothing magical about this rule, but it's just an example of the kind of rule that I think can be really useful, was this thing I've written about, which I call 333, which uh, involves making it your, your aspiration for the day to spend three hours on your most important core work so in my case that might be writing another working on a chapter of a book or something like that um uh three uh sort of to do sort of three um maintenance activities very broadly understood like things that keep you functioning well in your work in your life so it could be anything from you know 
an hour spent on email because you have to do that and maintain that through to making sure you you exercise or whatever right just three three hours of core work three maintenance uh activities that 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 keep you functioning well and then just like three other little random tasks and to-dos that have been like hanging over you recently and there's nothing magical about this and loads of people respond by saying like i couldn't afford to just do three hours of my main work and three to-dos like i've got far more than that to do um i think what's really important is it is to have some sort of framework for your day that that actually kind of lowballs the, the your goals right that doesn't say everything has to go exactly right today for this to work but it's hmm. just a way of saying like whatever else happens i will do this so it's not a it's not a massive million miles away from like most important tasks and other other ways of doing things like that and then it's very important for me anyway to do those three core hours first um to resist the urge to do what i call clearing the decks right trying to sort of get everything else out of the way before you turn to that stuff um and instead to develop the sort of anxiety tolerance that you need to um to to not do that to to be able to work on things that matter to you even though you know that your inbox is full and there's all sorts of other things you need to be doing to to have the willingness to uh to 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 do that work anyway so that's another part of it there's as i keep saying these are not magical truths i just think it's great to have some kind of um regulating mechanism that you use to think through your day and not to make it too rigid right not uh, i don't uh, you know full respect to anyone who can make very precise time boxing work in their day i can't and i feel like i've really tried and every time i end up sort of feeling so constrained and imprisoned by this scheme that i've set myself i i would much prefer to have a sort of uh flexible approach that that sort of gently pushes me towards focusing on what matters without making me feel like a sort of indentured servant of of a of a productivity system yeah i, I think a lot of people can relate to that i'm sure people listen to this want to be more efficient and effective and time have you know better sense of time management but they hate that minute by minute scheduling it's probably gives a lot of people anxiety and and um, even myself, like I've, I've really learned not to do that as much. So I'm sure that's very helpful for, for a lot of people. Do you ever, uh, I guess, are you, are you flexible with that? I'm assuming. So if you find yourself working and you work on your main task, that sometimes it does go over four hours, five hours, six hours, because you feel that is just something that you enjoy doing at that time. It's quite a subtle, interesting question to me, because on the one hand, yeah, right flexibility means you don't want to like shoot yourself in the foot if you're working on some important thing and you could keep going longer like of course and I will do that but I I I think it's also really interesting the research that's been done for example by the psychologist Robert Boyce into the mm. he, he worked with academic writers that was his field of study but I think it goes for anyone working with their brains about the importance of actually stopping you know that that um it we hear so much about how important it is to get started but actually if you decide you're going to do just half an hour on something because you're you know you've been avoiding it or it's intimidating and so you say like okay i'm just going to do half an hour today or even just 10 minutes whatever it is wherever you're starting there's mm. something very much to be said for um 
for stopping when the time is up, for not um, for not keeping going when you're on a roll. Um, part of what this is, voice theorized, you know, he finds that people who do this in their writing work actually do more writing over a over a longer haul. They're actually more motivated to get back to it. And so I have found this, right? If I only do, if I do less writing on a day than I think I'm capable of, and I manage to sort of pull myself away from it, even if I'm on a roll, it kind of stays exciting to get back to it the next day. Hmm. If I go all the way through riding that motivation until I'm exhausted, firstly, I'm exhausted, which isn't a good place to be. But, but secondly, like, there's something about it. It's taken up a very large amount of my day. It's become this very big thing in my life. And Boyce found that actually, and again, he's talking about writers, but I do think it generalizes. Um, Boyce found that um, keeping writing as a sort of a, as a modest part of, of their day was actually very powerful for people consistently and sustainably doing it. So whatever is your sort of deep work focus in your life. I think there's a really good case to be made, if, especially if one is sort of procrastinating and not doing much of it at all at the moment, to get started back into it by doing a small amount each day and actually stopping when that small mm, amount is finished. Interesting. You're saying forcing yourself to stop even if you feel that urge to keep going. Yeah. I mean, it's all an experiment. Maybe people are different. I think there are successful binge writers. I always remember when I'm talking about this, that like, I think Steven Pinker, who I can hardly say is not uh, an enormous success in what he does, yeah. uh, does sort of, you know, shut himself away and just write, 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 write for a couple of weeks and then stop and not write for ages. So like, fine, yeah. whatever works. But yes, I think that it's really useful to experiment with this idea of like pulling yourself away and just notice, like, does it get a bit easier to keep coming back to it? Because after all, you know, an hour a day on something for a month is going to be so much, so much more productive than eight hours one day, six hours the next, and then you're just exhausted and you kind of hate it and you don't go back to it for, for months. Yeah. I, I think what you're saying is rooted in research. Um, I don't know if you wrote about this, but I, it, there's a, a thing called the Zygnoric effect. Zygarnik, yep, yep. Zygarnik yep. effect. Uh, and I think she was like a student in, in Vienna, like a psychology student where she uh, noticed working at a restaurant as a, as a waitress that people that were there forgot, oftentimes forgot it when people forgot to like attend to the customers when they've paid already. But yeah. when she flipped it around and that uh, they didn't pay until the end, then the service was a lot better because they realized that because it was unfinished, unpaid, that they yeah. were able to continue to remember to service those customers. Yeah. Uh, and I think there's like research that was done on that. It's kind of like what cliffhangers are when you yeah. watch a series and they just kind of stop it right at the end before they actually give you the result of what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and you have a blog post about this, right? You, you, ha you have like a, a, it's like a three to four hour rule yeah the three to four hours yeah exactly right again i'm just sort of talking about how and um the original source for this in my world anyway is alex pang's book uh rest but if you if you look at the routines and the daily rituals of like oh my goodness it's, it's extraordinary it's like authors artists composers scientists mathematicians going back centuries it's really extraordinary how often this four hour number recurs um you know at certain points in history 
that was all they did, right? And the rest of the day was spent playing tennis and drinking cocktails because they had like six servants to do all the other things in their life. <laughs> even in the even in the more modern world where you know we don't benefit from such things, um, four hours is a very very common limit for what people seek to do of the really sort of taxing creative work at the core of their of their job. Even if they then have to do lots and lots of other sort of admin because they don't have someone to do it for them uh like charles darwin very much did but you know all these people it's just really extraordinary how often that that number um uh recurs and so you know uh i think alex pang hypothesizes and i certainly would join him in this that that you know there's there's maybe something a little bit baked into us as as humans that sort of sets that as some kind of an upper limit on a certain kind of of cognitive work um and i found this really liberating when i sort of started came across it and started experimenting with it because firstly it means like there's no reason to beat yourself up for not being able to do eight hours of deep cognitive work secondly you know for the reasons we've been discussing it leads to observing it leads to more work pretty quickly right it's Mm. it's not like you have to do this for three months to see the to see the productivity build up it's like it's like a few days and you're kind of clearly being more consistent than you than you previously were yeah when when you mentioned some of the names there i think it was like thomas jefferson charles darwin i even looked back at benjamin franklin's daily schedule and how he's worked and it's exactly the same you know it's like a couple hours two hours rest for lunch and then two hours or three hours and then he would you know just rest and and enjoy the rest of his day yeah Uh, it puts so much less pressure when you're just forced to you know, rest if you want to, because you realize that people have accomplished so much, even in those days before that we had all these tools. Um, So yeah, it's it's reassuring. (laughs) Can you talk about the Seinfeld technique that you write about? Uh, The Seinfeld technique? Yeah. Um, This is famous, but actually I sort of write about it in order to debunk it a little bit. Again, this is about rigidity versus flexibility and, and productivity, I think. Um, Jerry Seinfeld, comedian, um, uh, ha- mentioned once, a long, long time ago in an interview, I think, or no, to, a com- to another comedian, to a, to a, to a novice, a, a, a comedian who was sort of coming up, that um, if you wanted to write jokes and get good at being a stand-up comic, you had to like write every day, place a red X on the, that day in the calendar, and soon you get a kind of streak of red X's and then soon you won't want to break the chain of red X's and the, and the only, uh, you know, instruction is like, don't break the chain. Uh, and there's something very satisfying about that kind of way of, of working. And obviously streaks in social media and other contexts have become a sort of real sort of motivational thing right. in a way of getting people to do stuff is to like this sense of an unbroken, of unbroken progress. But I got to interview Jerry Seinfeld um, a few years ago and I asked him about this um, technique and he was just sort of laughed at how kind of kind of dumb it was. He was amazed that anyone thought it was a technique. It was just sort of like a throwaway, <laughs> a throwaway thought. And he said, like, I don't remember, his, I'm not quoting him here, but like he said, effectively, like, you know, he wasn't obsessive about this. It's just the basic spirit of working most days and treating it as a sort of athletic process rather than, you know, pure 
intuition or going and spending one week in a cabin and writing all your jokes for the year or something. Um, and so he actually had a much more, pardon me, a much more flexible uh, attitude to the Seinfeld technique than uh, a lot of people, a lot of other people had. And I think that's important, right? Because actually you don't want to create a situation where if you have a bad day, that ruins something in a bad, you, like you don't want to make a bad day worse than it is by, mm. by having a system that makes you into a huge failure because then like dieting, right? You, you fall off the wagon and you sort of bounce off in the other direction and, and eat terribly and, or don't come back to your diet for months. And so I think it's really helpful to sort of think about these things, these motive as motivational aids. Absolutely. But remember that these rules are there to serve you. It's not your job to serve the rule. And so, you know, flexibility and a certain amount of exceptions i think are are part of making it sustainable not a, not a problem at all beautiful yeah well really insightful um yeah it's funny that he he himself i think most writers and media or you know people like to make it this fancy technique and put a label on it just because of the celebrity that he is but yeah. I, I imagine for him, and I would imagine for him as well, that level of discipline to get to that level of success is already embedded into his working style that it was probably not as he can be flexible and, and bounce right back because that was his obsession in many ways to get to that level of success. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah, right. He's driven by, he's driven or he's pulled towards that goal by something that, that lights a fire in him rather than like whipping himself repeatedly to sort of follow a system to try to push himself there. I think, you know, the system has a role totally, but it's not the, it's not the real motive force of, of his mm. success. Yeah, for sure. Well, Oliver, thank you so much for the conversation. I had a really great time. Where can people find out more about you? Obviously I want people to go to Amazon or wherever they buy their books to check out 4,000 weeks time management for mortals. It's a very refreshing way to look at time uh, based on some of the holistic conversations that we've had, not necessarily all about maximizing the minutes that you have. Um, where else can people be directed to? Um, the main thing is where books are sold. But yeah, my, my website, oliverberkman.com, there's more information about the books. You can sign up for my newsletter, which I call uh, The Imperfectionist, and uh, a few other things like that uh, are there as well. Yeah. Right. And you have a book coming out maybe in, in hopefully... Oh, sometime. No, i got to write it Sometime. First. Okay. Yeah, it's a okay, long-haul okay. operation, as you know, so uh, uh, I'm, I'm plugging away. All right. Well, we'll Watch have to have space. you back. Awesome. Awesome. All right, Oliver. Well, thanks so much for tuning in and um, really appreciate our, our conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks so much, Sean.